You know, of course, we're in a series called Spirit-Filled Family Living. And I am a big believer in Bible principles. If you can find out what God's principles are, you'll discover that they work. They're successful in any situation. And we've been with the principle now for several weeks. We're learning it. We're, we're letting it sink into our spirits. And beyond that, we're seeing it in different, uh, different aspects. This morning, we're going to return to that principle in the book of Galatians chapter 6, the same chapter uh, Pastor Price quoted from in the song, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Do we see that? A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. Notice again, it does not say that God will punish him. I'm not saying that that isn't the case. I'm just saying that the principle is that the one who sows to please his sinful nature, self-gratification, which by the way, is the spirit of our times. The Bible says the one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit, notice that it's capitalized. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. The one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time, for at the proper time, We will reap a harvest if we do not give up. That's the principle that we're learning. Every day of our lives, we are sowing seed. Every word you speak is a seed. Every thought you think is a seed. Every attitude that you hold is a seed. Everything about you, your whole life, you are dropping seeds into the soil of your life. And you will reap a harvest. In fact, whatever's going on in your life is a harvest from the seeds that you and others have sown previous to this time. And what happens to your future, what happens in your future, will result from the seeds that you are sowing right now and the seeds that others in your family are sowing. That's why I'm trying to preach to you about spirit-filled family living. The Bible says the one who sows to please the Holy Spirit will reap life. There's life in the Spirit of God. There has been from Genesis 1 and beyond that earlier. There is life in the Spirit of God. And that is why we are not skittish, we are not embarrassed, we're not reluctant to talk about the Holy Spirit because we are convinced that there is life in the Spirit of God. If you sow to the Spirit, in other words, if the words and the actions and the attitude of your heart, if those are sown into the ground, to the soil of your life, in obedience to the Spirit of God and at the leadership of the Holy Spirit, you will reap a harvest of life. On the other hand, if the thoughts and attitudes and actions of your life are in accordance with your flesh. I remember in the 60s, I, the, the expression that so many of us used, if it feels good, do it. If you sow the seed of your life according to your flesh, the result is death. And if you're experiencing a harvest of death today, it isn't God punishing you. It's not God out to get you. It's not that you're going through persecution. It's just that you've sown to your flesh. That's the principle. And it works in everybody's life. Now, for the last two Sundays, we've been taking a look at a man who sowed to the Spirit. I love these Bible stories because all the, all the theological truths of God's Word are borne out in the lives of these characters. And if you can discover what worked for them, it will work for you. If you can see what didn't work for other people, 
then you'll know what to avoid. Like the little boy who went to uh, school on the first day of school and his mother had sent a note and said, little Johnny is, is uh, very uh, scared about going uh, to school on his first day. If he misbehaves, just slap the kid next to him and it'll scare him so bad that he'll straighten up. Well, if I see somebody in the Bible who got slapped, I want to learn from that. I want to straighten up. And we are, we're looking at a man who throughout his life, he sowed to the Spirit. And that is where we are. We're in the third part of that sermon. Title, of course, today is Sowing to the Spirit, Part 3. And since we are in Part 3, in the final part, at this, at the look of jo- at, in, in this look at Joseph's life, I want us to take a moment to review some of the challenges that Joseph has experienced. And what we have done, for those of you who might be with us for the first time today, as we're looking at Joseph's life, we're looking at the challenges that he faced, what his flesh told him to do, what the Spirit of God told him to do. Here is a man who is listening to the Holy Spirit. Well, his first challenge came from rejection within his family, severe rejection. Joseph's older brothers hated him, so much so that they wanted to kill him. So this day when they encountered Joseph out a long way from Joseph's father, they saw Joseph. They said, let's kill him. And while, how they, while they were trying to figure out how to kill him, they put him in a pit. And while he was in the pit, a band of traders, slave traders, nomads came by. And they said, now think about the hatred in this comment, this question. They said, what benefit is it to us? If we kill him, let's not kill him. Let's sell him. We'll get money for him. And these Ishmaelites will kill him. We won't be responsible for his blood that way. He'll die anyway. And we'll get some money out of it. Now, I want you to know that is a little beyond normal sibling rivalry. Amen. Some of you may have dealt with sibling rivalry in your family and, you know, had scuffles with your brothers and sisters and so on. But this is a little bit more... Uh, malignant than that. They, they put him in a pit. They sold him. And in 24 hours, Joseph went from being his father's favorite, wearing the coat of many colors, to a piece of property, a slave tied to a rope. Well, what would Joseph's flesh say? What would your flesh say? His flesh said, become a victim. You have a right, you have an excuse for anything that you do in life now because you are part of a victim class. But he didn't do that. We said last week, Joseph's determination was to bloom where he was planted, okay? If he was a slave, he was going to be the best slave in the house. And God blessed him. God's favor was on him. He just did what he did the best he could with what life brought to him. And before long, he just kept getting promoted and promoted and promoted until finally he was the head of Potiphar's household. But as we saw last Sunday, life wasn't through throwing bitter challenges at Joseph. His second challenge came from a malignant form of acceptance. Remember, his first challenge came from rejection. But now there is a very sinful, distorted form of acceptance in his life because Joseph is tempted by a woman who wants to seduce him, a married woman, his boss's wife. And you know the story from last week. I won't take a long time to tell it. Joseph was always being uh, tempted by this woman. She would... Uh, try to get him to commit sin with her. And one day there was no one in the house, but uh, she and Joseph alone. And she tried to get Joseph to sin with her and he ran from her and she grabbed his coat. By the way, Joseph was always having trouble with coats, right? She grabbed his coat and Joseph was just so 
He, he was so intent on getting out of Dodge that, I mean, he just left. He wasn't worried about the fact that she had his coat. He just got out. But this awful woman concocted a story in which she said Joseph came into the house with the intentions of sexual assault. And she intended to prove that by saying, see, I have his coat. Now, what would your flesh say if you were in a situation like that? Because by dinner time that night, Joseph was arrested and put in prison on a trumped up charge. I, I, I'm sure that when Joseph was tempted, his flesh would have said, take advantage of this opportunity. But now in all that, Joseph is in prison. Here's what I want you to think about for just a moment. I want you to consider that these early challenges in Joseph's life are very different from the one that he is about to encounter next. Because in all of these challenges that he faced, Joseph had no power in the situation. It was not, it, it, he didn't have any power to keep his brothers from throwing him in a pit. He didn't have any power to keep Potiphar's wife from lying on him. Uh, she held the power. Now he certainly has no power because he is in prison. There's no power for an inmate. But the next time Joseph is challenged in today's message, we're going to discover that Joseph is going to be the one holding all the cards. He is going to be the one with all the power in the situation. In this next cha uh, challenge, Joseph is going to be able to manage the outcome. You say, Pastor, what are you getting at here? Let me say this. I've discovered in life it's easier to do the right thing when you don't hold any power in the situation. There's a certain sense in the heart of a Christian that says, if I don't have any power here, then I must rely upon God. But how you handle the challenge when you do hold the power, how you handle the challenge when you are the one pulling the strings, how you handle the challenge when you determine the outcome is a much more difficult thing. That's where we're going today. Let me tell you how it happened. Let me tell you how this last challenge came about. I should tell you that, first of all, Joseph's first harvest comes in. We know that Joseph has been sowing to the Spirit, but it seems like as he sows to the Spirit, he just gets in more trouble. But now Joseph's first crop, his first harvest, is going to come in. Pharaoh is upset with two of his servants, his butler and his chef, his baker. And he puts them in prison. Now, where is Joseph? We saw last week, Joseph is in the prison of the, where the Pharaoh's prisoners are held. So Joseph is down there. He's pushing a broom. He's doing a good job. Everything the jailer puts in Joseph's hands, Joseph is doing. Joseph just starts getting blessed even in the prison. God is blessing him there. And by the way, God can bless you any place you are. And so the king's servants, the Pharaoh's servants, the butler and the baker are in prison with Joseph. And while they are there, they each have dreams. And I don't know what they thought about those dreams, if they thought they had any meaning, or if they thought they'd maybe just eaten uh, too many pickles and onions the night before they went to sleep. But in any event, they were there with Joseph, and they told Joseph their dreams. And Joseph said, hey, your dreams have significance, and here's what's going to happen. For you, Mr. Baker, I'm sorry, but I have some very bad news. Your dream means you're going to be executed. And he was. Mr. Butler, he said, I have very good news for you. The Pharaoh is going to restore you to favor and give you your job back. 
When the butler discovered this, he was so happy. He was so excited. He said, when I get back to the palace, I am going to tell the Pharaoh about you. And he's going to get you out of here. I'm going to tell the Pharaoh that you've been unjustly accused and he ought to get you out of prison. Okay, those of you who are Bible students, did he do that? No, he didn't. He got back to the palace and he was so glad to get his job back. He didn't want to rock the boat. He didn't say anything to the Pharaoh, but sir, here is your wine. (laughs) And two years passed. We might be inclined to look at that and say, isn't that terrible? But no, it isn't terrible. It's exactly part of God's will. Let me give you some simple logic on this. Think about it. Suppose the butler goes back to the Pharaoh and says, Sir, there's a man down in prison uh, on a trumped up charge, and he, he, can, he can interpret dreams. The Pharaoh says, well, I don't have any dreams right now that I need interpreted. By the way, who's this guy down there? He's a Hebrew. A Hebrew? Yeah, well, what's he accused of? Well, he's accused of attempted sexual assault on the wife of your general Potiphar. Now, if you're Pharaoh, how do you, how do you deal with that? So I'm not going to upset Potiphar because there's some Hebrew slave down there. So you see the timing had to be just right for this butler to remember Joseph. And indeed the timing did become right. Because one night Pharaoh has a dream and he can't figure it out. He knows that it has great significance. It is a terrifying dream, a bizarre dream. And Pharaoh must have been talking about it in front of his servants. And his butler said, oh my soul, I remember this day there is a man down in the prison who can interpret dreams. Who is the man in the prison? Our hero who's been sowing to the spirit for years. Pharaoh says, trot him in here. And Joseph comes in. The Pharaoh tells him his dream and says, sir, will you tell me what my dream means? And and Joseph said, I can't tell you what your dream means, but my God can tell you what it means. Do you remember how Joseph's world collapsed suddenly? Within 24 hours, he went from being his father's favorite to a slave Now, the reverse is going to happen quickly. Church, when God wants to bring you a harvest of blessing and turn your life right side up, it doesn't take him very long. Somebody could say, Pastor, I have been trying to serve God, and I've been trying and trying and trying to do the right thing, and it just seems like it takes forever. Listen, when God wants to bring you a harvest, he can do it in 24 hours if he wants to. Joseph will wake up that morning in the prison. He will go to sleep that night in the palace. He will wake up that morning with numbers on his chest. He will go to sleep that night in royal pajamas. Joseph woke up that morning as a prisoner. He will go to sleep that night as the prime minister of the most powerful kingdom in the world. It all happened like this. Pharaoh said, I had a dream last night. And in my dream, there were seven well-fleshed, well-fed fat cows feeding by the Nile. And all of a sudden, there were seven lean, gaunt, thin, scrawny cows And the seven thin scrawny cows ate the seven fat cows. And after they had eaten the cows, they were as scrawny as they'd ever been. Now that would keep you awake if you had that dream. Amen. If you saw that in your dream, you would say, what in the world was that? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, what does that mean? Joseph said, I don't know, but my God knows and I will tell you. And he told him what God's interpretation of the dream was. He said, you are going to have seven good years. The market will be going up. 
You're going to have record stock market days. You're going to be setting new records. All the mutual funds are going to be doing fantastic. But he said, after that seven years, you're going to have a train wreck. And everything is going to go south. He said, you're going to have seven good years with a lot of rain and a lot of grain. But in the seven bad years, there's going to be a famine. And Joseph said, here is what you should do. During the seven good years, take a fifth of the produce and store it for the seven lean years so that there will be produce for everyone during those days. And Pharaoh said, that sounds like a plan to me. And by the way, Joseph said, you need to find a good man. You need to find somebody really sharp who will oversee this whole thing. Now, can you get this whole scenario in your mind? Here is Pharaoh. He's on his throne. His whole entourage and all of his servants and his intelligentsia are standing there. And right in front of him is this Hebrew slave. Now, Joseph is all clean and washed, but he's not wearing Ralph Lauren. Amen. I mean, he is he's just, we're talking about just, we're talking about a, a clean prisoner. I mean, here's a clean guy, but in an orange jumpsuit. And Joseph is saying, look, you're going to have seven good years. You're going to have seven bad years. And what you need to do is store up some of the grain in the good years and keep it for the bad years. And by the way, you need somebody to oversee this operation. Now, you want to see God in this? I mean, if if the norm had happened, Pharaoh would start thinking, well, who have I been developing? Who have I been bringing up in the chain of command and sending to all the seminars? Who's been learning all the strategies for success? Who have I got here in my palace that I, I need to promote to this job? That would have been the norm. But imagine what happened when Pharaoh looked out and he said to all these guys, well, who can we find better than this guy in the orange jumpsuit? I'm just telling you, when God wants to bring in your harvest, he can do it. God can do the incredible. Pharaoh says, Joseph, you're the man. And suddenly Joseph has power. Now that's what I'm getting to. Amen. Remember that? Suddenly Joseph has power. He's not a slave anymore. He's not in Miss Potiphar's house for her to lie about him. He's not in the pit with his brothers anymore. Joseph is the man. Let me read you how much power he has. By the way, beloved, you want to see what sowing the spirit will do? Just look at this. This is incredible. Genesis 41 verse 38. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the spirit of God? You think God didn't reveal that to him? We've been talking about sowing to the spirit. Amen. Pharaoh said, is there anybody else that we can find who has the spirit of God in him? Verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He made him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And men shouted before him, make way. Then thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in Egypt. Wow. Don't you love that? His harvest is coming in. And the, and the Pharaoh said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you in charge of the whole land so that when your Mercedes Benz goes down through the streets of Memphis, everybody has got to bow to you. I, you, know, you know I have a weird imagination. Those of you who have been listening to me preach for 17 years. I, I just I envision in my mind, here is Miss Potiphar. She's going down to Saks Fifth Avenue to do a little shopping. And all of a sudden, here comes Joseph's chariot, and she has to bow. 
Do you see that? I love that. Make way. Joseph has power now. He's not going to be jerked around anymore. Then beyond that, Joseph gets married. We read about that. We aren't told much about his wife, but the joy that Joseph manifests in his family life that we read in, in the book of Genesis leads us to believe that he was very happily married. And considering that at this moment, Pharaoh is just giving Joseph the whole country, I'm sure that he picked out the most beautiful woman in the land, and her name indicates that she was very intelligent as well. So he picked out the sharpest, most beautiful girl in the land and said, Joseph, this is to be your wife. And we, we, we believe from what we read that Joseph was very happy in his marriage. By the way, he didn't lose anything by not, he didn't lose anything by not giving in to Mrs. Potiphar. Amen? God gave him a beautiful wife. By the way, I want to talk to you today. I know that we live in a world where immorality is as common as, as eating or drinking. But folks, let me tell you something. There is a severe curse placed on immorality. And if you are a person who engages in immorality, not only are you under the judgment of God, but you are also throwing away your good harvest. Then let me show you something else. Number three, Joseph is blessed with children. My favorite moment in the life of Joseph is when he is in the birthing suite for the first time. Now, those of you who have been dads, you can remember the very first, when your first child was born, when you can remember what that felt like, you can put yourself in Joseph's place. What's he, where has he come from? He was sold by his brothers, put in a pit, sold as a slave, lied about, put into jail for two years. That's a lot of misery. That's a lot of baggage for somebody to go through. But I think something happened at that moment when they took that bundle and gave it to Joseph. And for the first time, Joseph pulled back that covering and looked into the face of his little boy. You know what happened? When Joseph peeled back the covers and looked into that tiny face, all the pain was gone. It was forgotten. His harvest had come in. He had a son. And when they came in to ask Joseph, they said, what are you going to call this boy? Joseph said, I've got a name picked out for him. The name means to forget. To forget. What a name for a kid. Amen. He said, because God has made me forget all the pain that I've experienced. That's what he felt when he looked into the face of his little boy. God has made me forget all the pain. Manasseh was his name. It means to forget. And then when his second son was born, he called him Ephraim. Ephraim means fruitful. Joseph said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Joseph is living out the text that we've been studying. Remember the text, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Sounds great, right? But listen to me, church. Hear me out well, please. Because it can seem like I'm at the end of the story, but I'm not. Because God has another great blessing. See, Joseph has only unwrapped his first present. God's best for Joseph is yet to come. There is some unfinished business. Please don't raise your hand right now, but could I just ask you a question? especially those of you who are children of God, walking with God. Do you, do you feel blessed today? Do you feel the blessings of God? Could you say, I know that God is blessing me and I'm rejoicing in the good things that God is at work doing in my life? Don't make the mistake of thinking that that is everything God wants to do for you. Even if you are experiencing blessing, that doesn't mean that's everything God wants to do for you. If you're happily married and you have great children and God is blessing you and your bills are being paid, and you have food to eat and 
and clothes to wear and your family's healthy right now. Don't make the mistake of thinking that's the only thing that God wants to do for you. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, the Bible says, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Now, like I said, Joseph is going to have another challenge. And this time it will be different because Joseph will have all the power. He will hold all the cards. But while you're listening to this, I want you to remember that God isn't through giving Joseph his presence. And even now, after sowing all this good seed, if Joseph isn't careful, he will miss God's very best for his life. Let me talk to you about Joseph's greatest challenge, and I'll be through with the sermon. Those seven good years go by fast. And now we're in the middle of those seven bad years. Joseph is a busy man. People are coming from all over the world to Joseph to get food. Back at home, here's Jacob and Joseph's brothers. Joseph has not seen any of them. As far as Jacob knows, Joseph is dead. As far as his brothers know, Joseph is dead. The last time they saw him, he was on the end of a rope being dragged by a nomadic band of Ishmaelites. As far as they know, he is dead. But at the breakfast table one morning, Jacob says to his sons, why are you all quibbling with each other and looking at each other? We ought to go down to Egypt and get some grain because I hear there's some grain down in Egypt. There's, they have some grain stored up down there. And so the brothers say, all right, we'll do that. And so they get on their, their beasts and they, they ride to Egypt and they go into the palace to deal with the guy that they're going to have to deal with. Who is the guy on the throne? It's their brother. But they don't know him because now he is dressed in Ralph Lauren. He looks the part of the Egyptian. He, he is the Egyptian potentate, the monarch. He is on the throne. He looks like an Egyptian, speaks like an Egyptian, walks like an Egyptian. I mean, he is, he is the entire package. They don't know him. But that quick, he knows them. He knows who they are. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes or sandals. What does your flesh tell you to do? What does Joseph's flesh tell you? tell him to do. I think his flesh told him this was his chance to get even. This is your chance to get them. Look at that, Joseph. How many guys get that served up on a platter? These are the boys who put you in the pit. These are the boys who wanted to kill you. These are the boys who sold you. These are the boys who took your coat of many colors, dipped it in animal blood, sent it back to your daddy and said that you were dead. I think his flesh told him he had the power this time. You can make them dance on a string if you want to. You can put them in a pit if you want to. You can have their heads if you want them. You can sell them if you want to. There are people buying slaves in the city. And you're the prime minister. Sell them. Get something for them. You can put their blood on a coat and send it back to your father and say that some animal must have killed them. This is your chance, Joseph. This time, you hold all the cards. Church, do you see why I say this was Joseph's greatest challenge? But here's the thing. Do you know what God wanted Joseph to do? Beyond that, let me ask you a broader question. Do you know what God wanted to do? See, God wanted to bring about another harvest in Joseph's life. I mean, it was true he was in the palace. It was true he was prime minister. It was true he had a great wife and kids and he had money. It was true he had all these blessings, but God wanted to do something bigger in Joseph's life. 
See, here's what God wanted to do. Those brothers who hated Joseph and sold him, God wanted those brothers to love Joseph and to honor him. His dad that he hadn't seen, God wanted to bring Jacob to Egypt so that Joseph could do good things for his dad. God wanted Joseph to be able to see Benjamin, his full brother, again. God wanted to use Joseph to protect Israel. God wanted to do these great things for Joseph as part of his big harvest. That's what God had for him. But listen to me, church. It all goes up in smoke. God's greatest blessing goes up in smoke for Joseph if Joseph gets vengeance. If he sows to the flesh at this critical moment, he'll still live in a palace. He'll still have a beautiful wife. He'll still have great kids. But he is going to miss God's best for his life. So here he is. His brothers are right in front of him. They have no idea who he is. His flesh says, get even, wipe them out, kill them. But the great thing I love about Joseph, we've been seeing this for the last two weeks and today. What I love about Joseph is that Joseph is tuned in to another broadcast. I mean, his flesh is trying to scream at him. But Joseph keeps hearing this other broadcast. He hears this broadcast from the Holy Spirit. He can get it in the pit. He can get it on the road to Egypt. He can get it in Potiphar's house. He can get it in the prison. Joseph can get this broadcast any place because he is tuned in to the Spirit of God. Let me ask you, are you tuned in? If all you can hear is your flesh, don't be surprised if you have a harvest of death. Joseph is tuned in to the Spirit of God. And even though his flesh is saying, get even, Joseph is hearing what God wanted him to hear. Well, what is the Holy Spirit saying to Joseph? Listen, I am convinced the Holy Spirit was saying to Joseph, forgive, forgive, forgive. Do you know what forgiveness is? A lot of people say, well, I can't forgive. Somebody has hurt me in my life, Pastor. You don't know how badly I've been hurt. I can't forgive them. Listen, there is no one who can say I can't forgive. You can say I won't forgive. That can be an honest statement, but you can't say I can't forgive if you're God's child. Forgiveness is not pretending it didn't happen. Forgiveness is not trying to sell yourself mentally on letting somebody off the hook and saying, well, I'm just going to try to pretend to myself that it didn't happen and and try to forget about it. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is releasing someone from a debt. If you met someone today and they owed you $100, if you said to them, you don't owe me $100 anymore, then you have released them from their debt. That is tantamount to forgiveness. So then if someone has hurt you, what you are saying is, you don't owe me anything anymore. You don't owe me anymore. You're released. You're released. You don't owe me anymore. That's the first thing the Spirit of God is saying to Joseph. The Spirit is saying forgive. Number two, the Spirit is reminding him that his brothers never held his destiny. I love that. Joseph well understands that even though his brothers intended evil, God intended something good for him. And by the way, let me just say this to you. Think about the people, and you don't have time perhaps to think about everyone, but think about the people who have hurt you. I dare say if you've lived very long, there have been some people who have hurt you. If all you do is spend your time thinking about the people who have hurt you, you're going to make a great mistake with your life because your destiny is not in their hands anyway. Your destiny is in the hands of God. And he can take those very hurts in your life and use them to bless you. Joseph understood as his brother stood before him, what purpose would there be in him gaining vengeance? Because his destiny was not in their hands. His destiny was in the hands of the Spirit of God. He would just keep sowing to the Spirit. 
And then this is the big one to me. I wish I could preach it. I wish I had the eloquence to tell you this the way it needs to be told. Maybe I'll just have to ask the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God delights Joseph with the vision of restoration. Listen, why did Joseph forgive his brothers? Why did he love them? Why did he, why did he show grace to them? It's because the Holy Spirit showed him the beauty of what could happen if Joseph, Joseph would forgive them. Where do you see that, Pastor? Genesis 45. We're going to read for a few moments. Genesis chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold in Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Now listen, isn't that beautiful? I mean, they sold him, didn't they? Can you, can you hear, talk about your euphemisms. Can you hear the expression that Joseph is using for their selling him? He said, you sent me here ahead of you. <laughs> you just got me here early. It was God's plan. For the next two years, or excuse me, for two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So, verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler over all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. What a harvest. God has given Joseph a vision of what could be. You know, there may be some people right now that you're estranged from. Maybe it's a wife or a husband or a child or a parent or an in-law or a friend. Do you have a vision of what could happen if you would forgive? I know I haven't talked much about the family, but I want to now. I want to just get real honest with us. Those of you who are married today or those of you who are contemplating marriage, do you want a good marriage? I mean, that's a pointless question because obviously you do. Could I tell you, you can't have a good marriage without forgiveness? If you can't forgive, you can't have a good marriage. Because I'll tell you one thing. If you're in a marriage relationship, there's at least one sin nature in that relationship, amen, and it's yours. And if you get married, you're going to get married to another sinner. And I don't know how the mathematics works when you put two sinners together. You know, I don't know if it's addition. It, 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 it may be that you're squaring it. It may be going to the exponent. Because you have sin natures at work. And if you can't forgive, you're not going to have a good marriage. Parents, you cannot have a good relationship with your kids if you don't know how to forgive. You say, well, I'm going to have perfect kids. Ha! You must not have any yet. <laughs> I've told you so many times about the two women who met at a college reunion. 
And one of them said, you know, when I graduated from college, I had six theories about raising kids. He said, now I have six kids and no theories. You can't have a good relationship with your kids if you can't forgive. Young people, you can't have a good relationship with your parents if you can't forgive. Forgiveness is the balm that heals the wounds in the family. Now, someone will say, well, pastor, I can't forgive. Now, here is the message of your flesh, because here's the thing. The flesh will want you to hold unforgiveness, and the flesh will keep sending you these malignant messages. Now, here's the message that the flesh says. The flesh says, look, that person has hurt you. And right now, you have a certain power in not forgiving that person. If you forgive that person who has hurt you, you're going to relinquish the power that you have. That is a lie. Because there is no power in unforgiveness. Can we understand that today? There is zero power in unforgiveness. And beyond that, unforgiveness seems to have an especially bad harvest. I am just telling us all today. That if we will forgive the people who hurt us, there will be a spiritual harvest because forgiveness is what the Spirit of God teaches us to do. And beyond that, the Bible says that we are to forgive others because Christ has forgiven us. Do you want to be like Jesus? I'm going to tell you one of the most important things you'll ever hear from this pulpit. You are never more like Jesus than when you forgive those who have hurt you. When you release those who have hurt you at that moment, you are more like Jesus than any other time in your life. You say, Pastor, I don't know how I would deal with my feelings if I forgave. Friend, when you truly forgive, the response, the feeling in your heart is a feeling of joy. Let me tell you a story and I'll be through. Let me show you a picture. The lady on the left, isn't she a beautiful lady? I mean, isn't that one of the most beautiful smiles you've ever seen in your life? And I got to tell you, the photograph doesn't do it justice. She's a, when she walks into a room, the whole room lights up. By the way, have you ever seen that lady before? Do you know? Chances are you have. Because she is depicted in one of the most famous photographs of all time. She is the girl in the picture. And her name is Kim Fuke. Let me tell you her story for just a moment. When Kim Fuke was nine years old, the pilots, American and South Vietnamese pilots, dropped napalm, a jelly gasoline, on her village. And it fell on her and her brothers. And that napalm covered, and burns covered 75% of Kim's body. We see her in that picture. Nick Utt, an Associated Press photographer, caught her image in the photograph that has become one of the most famous photos of the 20th century and then saved her life by getting her to the hospital. Not only did did Kim have to deal with the burns and survival, which hung in the balance for a long time, but she had to endure countless surgeries. And I can remember as she has lifted up her sleeve and shown me scars, and she said, Pastor, they still stab like knives. So what she has gone through, she is continuing to go through. For years, Kim was forgotten. 
But in 1982, a German journalist asked the Vietnamese government about the girl in the picture. They had no idea where she was or who she was. So they went on a search for two years to find her. And when they did find her, the communists forced her to leave her village to become a, a propaganda image for them. For years, she was forced to do interviews with journalists all over the world so that she could tell them how awful the Americans were to her. But an odd thing began to happen in Kim's late teen years. She just was so hungry, so searching, that she began to read about other religions. And what she did, she went to the library and began to read about various religions. And it was while she was at the library that she read about Jesus Christ. And think about this. Here is this girl in the picture, this little Vietnamese girl who's being used by the communists for propaganda, sitting in a library, reading about Jesus Christ. And it was there that she came to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Right after that, the Vietnamese government sent her to Cuba to live. She was a medical student there. And while she was there, she met another medical student. They fell in love and got married. And because she still had some stature with the communists, they decided to pay her and her husband's honeymoon expenses and send them to Moscow. How would you like to go to Moscow on your honeymoon? That doesn't sound too great, does it? But that's what they did. They paid her way. By this time, not only is she saved, her husband is saved. The plane to Moscow stops in Canada for refueling. And Kim and her husband just walk off the plane. And they live in Canada. And that's where I met them. I preached in her church several times. And the first time I ever met Kim was in November of 1996. I was preaching a conference there at her church and. I was meeting at the end of the service. I was standing in the back and there were people from the church coming to meet me and talk to me and ask me to sign their Bibles and this kind of thing. And then Kim walks up. And I got to tell you, like you saw the picture, it can't begin to capture what she's really like. Effervescent. I mean, as I said, when she walks up and turns that smile on, it's like all the lights in the room come on. And Kim walked up and with her accent, she said, Pastor, I have to tell you, I won't be here Sunday to hear you preach. And she went on to tell me why. It was the weekend of Veterans Day. And the Vietnam veterans had invited her to speak at the wall on Veterans Day. And I can still remember... His little tiny tears formed on the outside of her eyes. And she said, Pastor, would you pray for me as I tell those soldiers, I forgive them because Jesus has forgiven me. Who's dropped napalm on you? Who has hurt you? Oh, we look so good, we, we dress up, we come to church, but I really believe that so many Christians are locked out of God's harvest because of unforgiveness. And you can keep playing it and replaying it for anybody who will listen to you. But it isn't going to change anything until you let them go. Until you let them go. You can tell me all day long about how badly people have hurt you, and I will cry with you. But your harvest may depend on you letting them go.
Let's pray. Father, speak to our hearts in the name of Jesus. And I pray that we may learn this all-important lesson, that we may have the harvest that you have planned for us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Very quietly, would you just stand to your feet right now? With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around and disturbing in any way, I wonder if you're here today and you would just say, Pastor, in the anonymity of this moment, with heads bowed and eyes closed, I wonder if you would just say, Pastor, would you pray for me today? I'm struggling with this. Someone has hurt me in my life, but I I want to have a harvest like you've talked about today. And you'd like for me to pray for you, and I will pray with all my heart. With no one looking around, just quietly slip your hand up for a second and say, Pastor, would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? I wonder if there's anyone here today who would say, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm going to heaven, but I want you to pray for me. I want to know for sure that I'm going to heaven, but I don't have that assurance right now. Would you slip up your hand and say, by holding up your hand, would you say, Pastor, pray for me today? In fact, I'm going to ask you to go beyond that. If you're here today and you're not sure that you're going to heaven, would you just walk up and meet me? And someone will pray with you today. And in just a few moments, you can know for sure that you're going to heaven. No doubts about it. If you're here today and God has led you to unite with this church, I'll be right here. I'll meet you if God is leading you to come. Maybe this morning you want to come and kneel before God and ask God about something in your life or maybe something in someone else's life. Maybe you just have a burden and you want to come and pray. It has nothing to do with the sermon. But if God is speaking, you come right now. Just slip out of your seat. Make your way to the altar right here. God will meet you here. You come.